Come follow me, the Savior said, then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we be one with God's own This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, a weekly podcast dedicated to my musings and observations on the New Testament and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more content, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Hey y'all, welcome to episode 27 of The Savior Said. Today we are studying the assignment for July 8th through 14th. It's Acts 6 through 9, What Will Thou Have Me to Do? And today we are talking all about the different ways the Holy Ghost guides us and leads us in our daily walk here on this earth. And so there's lots of really great stories, lots of really interesting things that happened this week in the scriptures. So I'm really excited to share that with you. First of all, just a quick rundown of what we're going to be talking about. We see the martyrdom of Stephen. We see Philip and his ministry in Samaria. And then we also see his ministry to the Ethiopian man. We also see Paul and Paul's conversion, and that's going to be a big part of this episode. I'm actually interviewing my mom for that part, so you guys are going to get to meet my mom today. I'm kind of really excited. So um, we got all kinds of good stuff coming up. So let's jump right on into Come Follow Me. And the first section is titled, My Heart Needs to Be Right in the Sight of God. And it says, A growing church meant a growing need for disciples to serve in the kingdom. We're going to pause there. I want to talk about what they mean about the growing church means needing disciples in this growing kingdom, right? All right, so if we look at Acts 6, 1, it says, And in those days, when the number of disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Okay, so what's going on in the scripture? First of all, you've got a society where, we talked about this in one of the other episodes, one of the beefs that Jesus had with the Jewish elders was that they didn't take care of their moms and dads. They didn't honor their fathers and mothers. They kind of threw them out and said that they gave their money to the temple, but they really didn't. And so, you know, he was like, y'all aren't following the commandment to honor thy father and thy mother, which was a big deal because back in the Jewish society, they didn't have retirement plans. They didn't have, they didn't have 401ks. They didn't have social security or anything like that. Like their retirement plan was their children. Like their children were supposed to take care of them. And if their children for some reason died or they didn't have children or things like that, then the church stepped in and helped to take care of them. And so what was happening here is you had two different cultures that were here in the early church and were actually there in Israel, two very different cultures. And you had the Greek Hellenization culture and then you had the Hebrew culture. And there were some different things about these varying cultures that caused all kinds of, you know, conflict, contention, kind of friction between the two different groups. And so when you've got a church where you've got, you know, the Aramaic Hebrew Jews coming in and you've got Jews with a little bit more of a Greek influence, maybe they're from different areas around like Turkey or, you know, some of the other countries that are around there and they've come and kind of immigrated into Jerusalem and they're now part of this little fledgling flock. You know, there's going to be culture clashes there. The Hellenistic Jews were a little bit more free and liberal about different things, where again, the Hebrew Jews would have been more strict about following certain rules, and they would want rules from this early church that was still so new and unformed, and so there was kind of like a little bit of a culture clash. And the reason I bring that up is because it was saying that the Greeks, the Hellenistic Jews, were mad against the Hebrew Jews because the Greek widows, the Hellenistic widows, were being neglected in the daily giving. You know, so the church was giving stuff out to the different widows to help take care of them, right? Because they didn't have anybody to support them. And so the Greeks come up to, I guess, Peter and the apostles, and they say, hey, our widows are getting left out. We want our widows to get what they need so that they can survive, right? They, they don't have kids taking care of them. They don't have husbands taking care of them. They need help. And we're getting left out in the cold because we're different from the Hebrew Jews. To me, I saw that and I was like, is there ever times in our congregations, in our wards, where there's different cultures that kind of clash a little bit? And I think there are. I think, you know, in all human beings, we all tend to have a tendency to state what we think is truth and what we think is right and the way our brains work. And sometimes that rams up against what other people's brains work and the way that their brains work and the way that they believe and the way that they think. 
But if they're coming into Christ, we've all got a common goal. So we need to work together and kind of get together, even if our brains don't work quite the same way. Anyway, so you got these two different cultures. They're clashing. They're like, hey, our widows are getting left out. And so then the twelve called the multitude together of those who had followed Christ, their little flock, right? And they said unto them, and this is verse 2 in, in Acts 6, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, when I first read this, I had a picture uh, in my head of Peter, you know, in his toga and sandals or whatever, you know, walking through a restaurant holding a tray that, you know, you see waiters who are serving tables, um, carrying a tray like he's serving tables like in a restaurant. Um, no, that's not what that meant. <laughs> so I had to figure that out this week. But that is not what serving tables meant. In this particular context, a table is the money changer who did the collecting or overseeing of exchange of money in the temple to oversee the money changing so that the widows could get the money that they need. Well, now here's where I see, you know, I don't know if it's that the early disciples and apostles were like really smart when they did this. They came to the Lord with a really good group of names. The Lord confirmed it. They gave the names to the crowd and the crowd is happy. If maybe there wasn't some part of the selection process was like, hey, we may need to pick out some people who are of a Greek background the Hellenistic background to really represent those people who feel like they're getting shafted in this daily ministration to the widows. They also looked for several other characteristics. They looked for men who are of honest report because if they're going to be handling money, you need to make sure that they have an honest reputation, right? They're full of the Holy Ghost and that they're full of wisdom who they could appoint over this business of taking care of the money and handing out the money. In verse 5, we see that the whole multitude was pleased with this. And the names of the people that the apostles chose to take care of this, the seven, were Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Niancor, Timon. I'm saying Timon because I know like Timon and Pumbaa from Disney, but I think it might be Timon. I'm not sure. Timon or Timon? One of those two. Parmenaeus and Nicholas. And if you go in and you look at those names, they're all Greek names. So, of course, that's going to be smart. You know, you, the Greeks were the ones who were hurt or offended. So they went and they picked seven people from the Greek side and said, hey, here you go. Go help the others who are giving out the daily ministrations, serving the tables, and you guys can go take care of it so we can work on, like, preaching the gospel. We don't have to work on the everyday administration. And we see that today in our church, too. We have a bishop who basically runs the ward, but he doesn't know every single thing that's going on in primary. So he calls a primary president and a primary presidency to take care of that. And we call teachers to take care of the kids. And that way he doesn't have to worry about that. You know, running just even a ward congregation would be really hard all on your own. But think about this. There were thousands of people that were in this early church that they were in charge of. And they were spread everywhere. There's no way that just 12 people could run it. So they did need all these little helpers that they could call to the cause that would help with like the daily mundane everyday stuff of running the church so that they could go and preach Christ unto others. So the different attributes they were looking were people with honest reputation, honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. And we read in, come follow me, it says, as you read Acts 6 through 8, note how these qualities and others were demonstrated and people like Stephen and Philip. And we see that even, you know, in verse 5 that we just read with their names. The first name it says is, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. So we see right there that he's full of faith. He's got a great reputation. And he's full of the Holy Ghost. And then we can read more about Stephen in the coming chapters. And Stephen, to me, is a very strong guy. I'm very impressed with him. Very smart, too. He definitely was full of wisdom. That was one of the characteristics they were looking for. But he's in the middle of a scary situation, and he's able to stand up for Christ and kind of speak, you know, what he knows to be true. And we see in Acts 6.10 that it even says, And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. So we see that he definitely had the Holy Ghost with him, and we see he definitely had wisdom. Going on a little bit more into 15, and he's in front of the high priests. 15 says, And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. So the Holy Ghost actually even came in and kind of transformed him in front of them. So he was definitely full of the Holy Ghost. And then during his martyrdom in Acts 7, we see Acts 7, 55, But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And so even then, he was still full of the Holy Ghost, even there at the very end. The other thing I like about Stephen was he was smart. He knew that there was nothing that he could say at that moment that would save his life. He knew that there was nothing he could say at that moment that would, like, in that moment, change their minds. 
What he did instead is he went over the history of the Jewish people and all the ways that it was showing how it was building up to Christ. All the different ways that they had been saved, all the different ways God had reached out to them over the course of their history, which all the Jewish elders would be very familiar with. And so he's trying to plant these seeds and make these connections so that, you know, they're not going to believe him in this moment, but maybe years on down the line, something will click and that spark will be there to kind of inflame that testimony of Christ. So he knows he's not saving himself with this big, long testimony that he bears. He's not saving himself. He's planting seeds. He's full of the Holy Ghost. He knows his purpose there, and he knows that he's probably not getting out of this with his life. But he does it anyway. And to me, that shows great wisdom. It shows definitely being filled with the Holy Ghost. But then it also shows great bravery. Stephen was incredibly brave. And also, I think he was incredibly loved by our Heavenly Father. The fact that he was able to see Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father and then testify of it in that moment. I mean, that's just a really great blessing. So I I was really impressed with Stephen. I've always been impressed with Stephen. But Another disciple that I had never really even thought of or paid really much attention to before, but that I just found I loved this week, was Philip. Philip was the man. Um, And that's funny because I thought while I was reading all this that I was going to be like all about Paul because Paul is like one of my personal heroes. But no, Philip. Philip this week was the one who really stood out to me. He's the one that got the gold star, I think, out of all the chapters. Um, And so Philip was one of the ones that they called. And so what are the characteristics they were looking for again? Good reputation. Holy Ghost, and Wisdom. So we read about Philip in Acts 8, 3. And I'm starting a little bit behind, and then we're going to kind of get to the point where you can see the wisdom and stuff like that, okay? So a little bit of history, Acts 8, 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women committed them to prison. So Saul is going left and right, throwing people in prison, creating havoc. Therefore, they were scattered abroad and went everywhere preaching the word. So even in the midst of all this havoc and persecution that the early Christians are facing, they scattered abroad and went everywhere preaching the word. And so this is an example to me. The Lord did a lot of things with Saul and his different actions to bring about truth. But to me, this is another example of the Lord taking lemons and making lemonade. You know, Yes, the early Christians are being persecuted, so he's like, okay, split up and scatter. Let's take the gospel to all the different areas of the world, and that will keep you safe from the Saul guy. But then also, the gospel of Jesus Christ is going out to all these other countries and nations, and that's pretty cool. And then there's Philip. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he preached Christ unto them. And so Samaria, remember the Samaritan women we met, you know, when Christ was here with us um, there at the well? So Christ went and he abode in Samaria for a couple days with them. And he was probably planting seeds at the time that Philip is now coming back and able to reap. So Samaria would have been an interesting place for a Jew to choose to go. And even though they didn't consider themselves Jews, it still would be an interesting place for someone of, you know, the Jerusalem background to choose where to go. Because they were not big fans of the Samaritans. All right, we know this. There was like major clashing. All right. Sons of Mosiah choosing to go to the Lamanites, that kind of thing. So Philip chose to go there, though, okay? And he preached Christ unto them. And I love that phrase, and we see it again in another another spot, where he preached Jesus. And it makes it so the gospel is so simple. We don't have to preach all about the culture, all about these different things, all about the different things that we have to do. We just have to preach Christ. We just have to teach Jesus. We have to teach that saving doctrine, and that is what is going to convert people. And once they have that, all the rest can follow. But we've got to preach Jesus first and foremost. And so I love that in that scripture that he talks about. He's preaching Christ unto them. So Philip, some of the attributes he had, he was definitely brave like Stephen, um, and he was full of the Holy Ghost. And we see the Holy Ghost direct his paths for good in several different ways this week in our reading. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But in Acts, when we see that Philip was preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Again, he's preaching Christ, right? And so he's got a great reputation because he's preaching these things and people are amazed. So much so that a local sorcerer named Simon took interest in him. And so Simon was someone who's probably doing like, you know, magic, I'm saying in quotations, you know, magic to the people there who's creating like miracles, again in quotations, not real miracles, not real magic, but he was like, you know, parlor trick kind of things so that he could get, you know, a following and get pride and power. And so he sees Philip, he sees Philip's good reputation for doing miracles and things like that. And he starts following him. 
And he's like, man, I want to be part of this. Like, this is cool. This guy's doing miracles? Yes. And so we see in Acts 8.13, Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracle and signs which were done. And so the first time I read this, I'm like, hmm. I don't know that he's truly converted because he's converted to, I think, first of all, the man Philip, not necessarily the gospel, which we see that sometimes with converts, that they're converted to the relationship that they have with the missionaries. And I'm not saying that it's like an inappropriate relationship, but, you know, they're comfortable going to church because they they see their friend there, you know, they see that person there. And then when the missionaries transferred, you know, it kind of falls apart. So I think that there was something going on like that with Philip, where he was comfortable with Philip. Maybe he got re- along really well with Philip. When Philip leaves, would he still stay true to the church? Mm, I don't know. But then the second warning sign that concerned me with Simon was that he was wondering about the miracles and signs which were done. It doesn't say Simon was wondering about Christ or Jesus, or anything about his gospel, just the miracles and signs. And, you know, I say it time and time again, true doctrine converts, not miracles. And so Simon was converted to a miracle, and that never has lasting power. So let's talk a little bit about Simon, because the next question it asks and Come Follow Me is, what was lacking in Simon, and what can we learn from him about being willing to change? Okay, so the next little part we're reading our scriptures this week talks about Simon. And so what's happened now is that Peter and John, who are in Jerusalem, have heard of Philip's great success in Samaria. He's baptizing people. Things are going really well. And so in 14, we read, Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John who, when they had come down, prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. Which, pause, I want to say this. I was reading some commentary this week, and it wasn't specifically Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints commentary. It was just general Christian commentary. And they were having a field day with these scriptures because they were like, we don't know why they had to go give them the Holy Ghost again. So we're really not sure the interpretation of these scriptures is right. And we're trying to think like the different, there's four different interpretations that they had for what like the apostles were doing there with the Holy Ghost and things like that. Maybe the early saints had fallen away, so the apostles had to come and bring them back in. And that's how they received the Holy Ghost. And it took me a moment. I'm like, yeah, you know, if I wasn't in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, this section would not make sense to me. But I've never thought twice about it because I am in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints where we get baptized and then we get the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands. And that's not something that happens in the general Christian church. So this was very weird to the general Christian commentary when they were going through and reading this. They are trying to figure out what was going on. But to me, I'm like, oh, this makes total sense. So it was really interesting to me to read that. Okay. And pause. We're back. We're back to Simon, okay? So they've gone. They've given the gift of the Holy Ghost to all the saints. And 18. And when Simon saw this, he saw them laying on the, the apostles' hands. The Holy Ghost was given. He offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay my hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee. And Several of the commentaries say that thy money perish with thee is a very gentle version of what Peter actually says in Greek. Basically, he tells him where to go and to take his money with him. Okay, so I'm just going to say that. And Peter continues on, Because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money, thou hast neither part nor lot in this manner, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So Peter figures out real quickly that Simon's heart is not in the gospel. Simon's heart is set on money and worldly pride and worldly power. It's not where it needs to be. And we even see an example of that in 24 when Simon answers him back and says, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which you have spoken come upon me. So number one, Simon's not interested in a personal relationship with his Heavenly Father. He's asking Peter to pray to the Lord for him. He's not interested in finding a testimony or repenting or changing his heart. He just doesn't want to get hurt. He doesn't want all the things that Peter's just said will happen to him. He doesn't want them to happen to him. So Simon, definitely his heart was not in the right place. So he was a really interesting story to me this week. After all this happens, we don't really know what happens to Simon. Um, Does he repent? Does he come back to Christ? 
I don't know. I'd like to think no one is ever so far gone that they can't come back to Christ. But in this case, because he was so laser focused on the money and the power, I don't know necessarily if he could. It would take a major change of heart. But if anyone can change hearts, it's Jesus Christ, right? So I don't know if he came back or not. I would like to know. So that's one of those questions I got for the other side. Come Follow Me asks, is there anything you feel inspired to change to ensure that your heart is right in the sight of God, and how might making this change bless you as you serve God? Okay, from my reading this week, and not just with Philip and Simon and all that, but also Stephen and even Saul slash Paul, I learned that I need to be authentic and wholly committed to my faith. That as I go about my daily walk, I need to be firmly in my testimony of Jesus Christ and firmly planted in that. And as I do that, making this change might help me serve God. As I make these changes, blessing others and serving others becomes less of a burden. Um, And that's important to me right now. I was recently called as the second counselor in our stake primary presidency. And so like this happened like last week. And I have not yet been released as the primary president of my current ward. So I'm currently serving in two different callings, a state calling and a ward president calling at the same time. And so it's a a little overwhelming at the moment. (laughs) It's going to change. It's going to change. My bishop's working really hard to get that that change. But, you know, it takes a couple weeks to get a new presidency in place. So um, I saw this this week, and that's really why I thought. I was like, if I can keep my heart and my gaze focused on the Lord and focused on what it needs to be and keep my heart right in the sight of God, then blessing others and serving God is going to become easier. It's going to become more natural. You know, if I'm listening to spirit and having the spirit with me, I don't have to go fumbling after it. Answers come so much more quickly when I'm listening to the spirit and staying in the spirit than if I'm like trying to do things on my own. So it was really instructive to me to follow the examples of Stephen and Paul and Philip and all, all the disciples and apostles of this week. So that was that section of Come Follow Me. Up next, resisting the Holy Ghost can lead to rejecting the Savior and his prophets. It says, the Jewish leaders, though charged with preparing the people for the coming of the Messiah, rejected Jesus Christ and demanded his crucifixion because of his or her pride and quest for power. How does this happen? Stephen declared to them, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. What do you think it means to resist the Holy Ghost? All right. I think it means ignoring the Holy Ghost. You know, we learn that when we follow the promptings of the Holy Ghost, we become more sensitive to them, and the Holy Ghost can prompt us more and more in our lives. But if we ignore those promptings and we don't pay attention to them, then our heart becomes more and more hardened against it, and we're not as sensitive to them. We don't hear them quite as frequently. And so I think that's what was happening with the Jewish elders. They should have been closer to the Holy Ghost than anyone, but they had hardened their hearts so much. They had built up these barbed wire walls of rules and regulations regulations to keep the Holy Ghost out so that, you know, religion to them and worshiping to them was just kind of an automatic act. It was kind of like a robotic kind of thing. You know, I'm just going to do what I'm supposed to do because I'm supposed to do it, not because the Holy Ghost is testifying to me that it's something I'm supposed to do. So why does resisting the Holy Ghost lead to rejecting the Savior and his prophets? Because you don't have the Holy Ghost testifying to you in your heart that it's true, right? If you're just following rules just to follow rules, that's not a testimony. Right? You've got to follow the rules and get the confirmation that that's true. And so that's kind of what I see in that section. As you read Acts 6-7, through 7, look for messages that Stephen taught the Jews. What attitudes was he warning against? And I saw this specifically in Acts 7, 51-53. He said, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed them before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers who have received by law the disposition of angels and have not kept it. So he calls them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in their heart and ears. They're not holding true to the gospel in their hearts and in the things that they listen to. They're resisting the Holy Ghost, which is something that obviously they've been taught by their parents, as your fathers did so do ye. They persecuted those who truly believed they are betrayers and murderers of Jesus Christ. And then they've received the law, but they do not keep it. Come Follow Me asks, do you detect any similar attitudes in yourself? Anytime, anytime I disobey God, you know, I've received the law and I'm not keeping it. I'm being just as bad as they are anytime I I disobey God or the laws that he's given me. And anytime I ignore the Holy Ghost where I'm like, you know, I'm going to do what I want. I do what I want, right? 
Um, anytime I have that attitude and I don't listen to the Holy Ghost or I don't follow the things that I know are right, I'm betraying and hardening my heart against the Holy Ghost, and so I need to fix that as well. What do Stephen's words teach you about the consequences of resisting the Holy Ghost? Well, when you resist the Holy Ghost, you become hardened like those Jewish leaders were. They were kind of almost like Law of Moses robots, right? We don't want to be a Law of Moses robot, so don't resist the Holy Ghost. How can you be more sensitive and responsive to the promptings of the Holy Ghost in your life? By listening to it and following it when it tells you what to do. And also, I would say, by inviting it into your life. You know, praying daily, reading your scriptures, going to church, doing the things that you know you need to do, that we all need to do, to make sure that the Holy Ghost is in our life. All right, so the next section talks a little bit about the martyrdoms. Um, You guys know I don't like talking about death. I have a hard time with it. You know, even with the crucifixion, I had a hard time. You know, I used to do story time at the library. And I always said, no one ever dies in my story time. (laughs) So I really don't like anyone dying in my podcast either. So y'all can go look those scriptures up. We're not going to talk a whole lot about the martyrdoms. But it does say it is likely that after the Savior's resurrection, all the apostles except John died as martyrs. So we got that. Okay, next section. The Holy Ghost will help me guide others to Jesus Christ. What do you learn about sharing the gospel from the account in Acts 8, 26-39? And this is where Philip and the Ethiopian are talking. How did the Holy Ghost guide Philip? How is sharing the gospel with others like being a guide? What I learned from this was follow the Holy Ghost even when it seems crazy or hard. And we see that 26 through 27. It says, And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go towards the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem into Gaza, which is desert. So Philip obviously already was listening to the Holy Ghost, because he's already made one crazy pilgrimage to Samaria, right? Now he's being asked to go into the middle of the desert. And I would be like, I don't know, I'd probably look up and be like, really, Lord? Really? Because there's nobody that lives in the desert. Like, there's just lizards out there. But Philip was like, okay, cool. I'll go. So he arose and went. He arose and went in 27. So I learned to follow the Holy Ghost, follow what the Lord asks you to do, even when it's hard, and go into the middle of the desert if that's what he is telling you to do, right? And so in 27 we read, and he rose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem to worship. So let's take apart the scripture just real quick, because there's some historical stuff that I think is kind of fascinating, okay? So a man of Ethiopia, not today modern Ethiopia that we think of. That's not the Ethiopia we're talking about. This Ethiopia was much, much bigger. Also, Candace was not the name of the queen. Candace is actually the title of the royal office. Okay, I'm going to read to you from Wikipedia. I know Wikipedia is not always right, but they've always got some good references. So this is what Wikipedia has to say about this, okay? Candace was the name given to all the female rulers or consorts of the kingdom of Cush, which is now part of the Sudan. In Greco-Roman historiography, it derives from the Meroitic word kadaik that refers to any royal woman. Ethiopian was a Greek term for black people generally and often applied to Cush, which was well known to the Hebrews and often mentioned in the Hebrew Bible. The eunuch was not from the land today known as Ethiopia, which corresponds to the ancient kingdom of Aksum, which was conquered by the Cush in the 4th century. The first writer to call it Ethiopia was Philostorgius around 440. And it's got a couple different commentary on it, basically saying that the reason that they feel Luke included the story in the Acts of the Apostles was to show how far spread the gospel was, that it was going all the way to Ethiopia, this big kingdom that was south of Israel and Jerusalem. And then also to show how accepting they were to people of other races and other cultures that, you know, an Ethiopian could even come in and that they could teach an Ethiopian and he could be converted to this new church, whereas the Jews were kind of snotty about the Ethiopians before this. So I think it's kind of interesting. Candace was not actually the name of the queen, too. Candace was the title of the royal office. Um, there are some other words that they use, like Kadek, Kandake, you know, different words that they use that sound similar to Candace as well. A lot of people think Candace was her name, but it wasn't. I thought that was interesting as well. So let's go back to why we're reading this, because we want to see how the Holy Ghost worked in this situation. So the eunuch is sitting in his chariot, and he has been to Jerusalem to worship, and he comes back, and he's sitting in his chariot reading Isaiah the prophet. And in this time, books were very rare. They weren't even books. They were scrolls, right? So if he's reading Isaiah the prophet, he has a scroll of Isaiah, which would have been very expensive. Normal, regular, everyday people did not have the scriptures in their home, which is why they would go to the synagogues to have the scriptures read out loud to them. But this guy's got his own copy. And so he's sitting in his chariot just reading, you know, as it's going along. And the Spirit comes unto Philip. 
this is in 29, and says, go near and join thyself to this chariot. And so then Philip ran. That's another reason. I love Philip. He, like the Holy Ghost tells him to do something, and he says, how high? And I mean, he, he arose and went. He ran. He didn't just walk up to this chariot. He ran. And he ran thither to him. And he heard him read the prophet Isaiah. And when we say, when we read there that he heard him read, Again, because people didn't have scriptures in their homes, they, they would read the scriptures out loud. So this is a very common practice. Whenever people did have a personal copy of the scriptures, that they would read scriptures out loud. Okay, so that's why he's running up and he can hear the Ethiopian man reading the scriptures to himself. And so that's how he knows what he's reading. And he says, Understandest what thou readest. And the Ethiopian says, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with them. And so they talk about the scripture from Isaiah. And then in 35, this is the part that I love. It says, Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And that's what he preached him was Jesus, just Jesus Christ. None, none of the fancy other stuff. And so they see water as they're going along their way. And the eunuch says, See, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip says, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And the Ethiopian answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Okay, let's contrast that with Simon, who Philip taught in Samaria. You know, did Simon believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God? No, he just believed Philip could do amazing miracles, right? And so, very different conversion stories between Simon and between the Ethiopian man. We have an e the Ethiopian man who's already reading the scriptures. He's already searching and feeling after Christ. Christ is his goal. He wants to know more about this gospel. He, he's already felt that light in his heart, and he's looking for more. Whereas Simon was just like, I guess, starry-eyed over the spectacle of the different miracles that Philip was doing. And so the Ethiopian man commands the chariots to stand still, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. So he took Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, but he went on his way rejoicing. So what we see there is, again, a very big difference between Philip and Simon and Philip and this Ethiopian man. Philip and Simon, again, Simon was, you know, I think kind of converted to his friendship with Philip, whereas the eunuch, he never saw Philip again, but that was okay because he had the gospel of Christ and that's what he was converted into. I think that, that these two stories back to back are very interesting to kind of compare and contrast. I love the story of the Ethiopian man, though. I think that's pretty cool. All right, next up and come follow me. <laughs> okay, this is one of my favorites. So we get to talk about Saul slash Paul and Saul's conversion. And I love Paul. I think he is awesome. And I specifically love the way that the Lord sets him up to be able to be this huge instrument in his hand. And it reminds me a lot, actually, of Star Wars. If y'all are Star Wars fans, it's like Anakin Skywalker, but like in reverse. <laughs> Instead of raising Anakin up to be like this amazing Jedi and then him going over to the dark side, we have Gamaliel raising Saul up to be this amazing Pharisee. And then the Lord brings him over to the good side, the right side of the force, right? And then he becomes an amazing Jedi for the church. So I see Star Wars a lot in the story of Paul. So I think it's pretty cool. But for this particular episode, I'm going to introduce my mom. So she's going to tell you a little bit Bit more about her thoughts on Paul. So here we go. Alright, so welcome to the Savior Said. Everyone, I'd like you to meet my mom. This is my mom. We call her Miss Jenny in my family. <laughs> so welcome, Miss Jenny, to the Savior Said. Um, we are talking a little bit about Paul. And the reason I wanted to interview my mom about Paul is because Paul was given a very specific set of gifts over the course of his life that enabled him to complete his mission for the Savior and for his gospel. And I see the same thing happening with my mom, that she's been given a very specific set of gifts to be able to accomplish her mission, whether it be the mother of five children or being on our local city council or, you know, with her work with her foundation, whatever it is that she does, she's got a very specific set of gifts. So I wanted to interview her for this particular section. So welcome, mom. Thank you, Lexi, and hello, Lexi's <laughs> listeners. We're very excited that you're here. Okay, so tell me a little bit about what you think about Paul, because I know you were a gospel doctrine teacher for years. So what are your thoughts about Paul and the gifts that the Lord gave him and how he used them to complete his mission? Well, what I think is really interesting about Paul is that I think Paul really had a desire to devote himself to God, but God just had to redirect that energy that that devotion in the path that he wanted it to go and that's 
so much how many of us are. We have this idea, you know, there's that saying about if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. And Paul had very specific <laughs> ideas about what he needed to be doing. And he did it. He, the scriptures say he, he was very fervent and very committed and very energetic in the work that he was doing. And, and the Lord wanted to use that but he wanted to use it for his purposes and to help bring people to Christ. So that's, and that's how he works with us too. We, we think we've got an idea of exactly how our life is supposed to go. And at the most interesting moments, the Lord says, mm, maybe not. <laughs> and you're going to take a left turn here that you didn't see coming. And sometimes it can, that can be really, really hard, even though we're being used according to the Lord's purposes. Sometimes adversity is how he works with us. But in one way or another, like with Paul, he's very aware of our needs and he uses us in ways that will not only benefit the Lord in, in carrying forth his work, but also in helping us become better and stronger and used according to his purpose. All right. So how are some ways that you've seen the Lord work in your own life, taking gifts and stuff that you've been given and applying it to the mission that he sent you here to earth for? Well, one of the ways I've seen him work is through adversity. So we went through a period of time where um, your sister was, was extremely ill. She's eight years old and develops tumors in her lung, and they have to remove her lung, part of her heart, her ribs. I mean, it was awful over two years. But in the course of doing that, living down at Children's Hospital in Birmingham, we developed a knowledge set and compassion in particular, which does not come naturally to me. I'm kind of a get-over-it kind of person. <laughs> and... Um, but but in the course of those two years and, and the ensuing time, it helped us develop a knowledge base that, that has been used since that time to help others in some pretty remarkable ways, just as others were used to help us. So I think adversity works that way. Um, I think the Lord has given me certain gifts, and, and my patriarchal blessing says that I have been given gifts that will be used to bless the lives of others and to help those in need. And so that has, I think, informed and guided my efforts with my work with nonprofits, um, and my work in public service, in elected office, uh, and and in you know a whole bunch of other ways in in church callings that the Lord you know have I have always sought that direction of how can this help me help others? Yeah, that's great. Are there other instances of adversity that you can think of that have kind of shaped your life the same way Paul had his life shaped? Well, one of them was that I'm a convert to the church. And so joining the church when I was in my late teens was definitely a left turn in my life. I really did not see that coming. And that has redirected my life in some very unique ways. My family was, your grandmother in particular, was, was not supportive, to put it mildly. And um, that's made me very very aware of other converts and the challenges that they go through. And um, so I've always felt a desire to particularly be mindful of, of their needs. I don't know that it was adversity as much as, you know, having five kids helped me to really become passionate about education. And so as a result of that, I wound up serving as a PTA president five times because all five kids needed to be embarrassed equally. And <laughs> then, um, and that prepared me then to run for the school board and serve three terms on our, our local school board. And, and then that prepared me to serve on our city council. And you know, maybe maybe as the mother of five children, I learned that you can't make everybody happy, which was very helpful when I'm trying to make a couple hundred thousand people happy all the time. You can't do it. The Lord works with us incrementally. I think there's a reason why he doesn't let us see the big picture of everything ahead, because we probably would shrink from it or run screaming into the night. But he lets us, he prepares us a step at a time to just see the light ahead of us and then gives us the faith to walk forward to the edge of that light. We just have to have to faith to follow. I think one of the most important things we can do as we follow the Lord's plan for us is get out of his way. Sometimes we want to dictate where that path is supposed to go, but if we open ourselves to what the Lord has in mind for us, we go much further and to better places. 
Yeah, and places we never even saw coming. Not even. Not you know? even. I, I, you know, I remember running for, I think it was like student body secretary or something when I was in high school, and I lost, and I swore I would never run for anything again. And so, you know, running for public office was not something I ever thought I would do. In fact, when I told your dad that I was going to run uh, for school board back in 2002, he said, I know what your campaign motto should be. It should be vote for me or I'll cry. Because he knew that I took things so personally. And, you know, since then, I've just developed rhinoceros hide. But who would have thought that would be possible? So I, th- I think we develop gifts in the course that the Lord knows are there that we never knew were there. So, you know, my ability to handle conflict has increased tremendously. My ability to speak with honesty to people, but do it in a way that's not offensive. You know, I've had to learn how to do that. The Lord really does make us equal to what he calls us to do. That's a really good point, too. What are some tips or guidance that you can give to people who are listening right now who want to know how they can find the gifts that the Lord has given them, like Paul, because they want to complete their mission here on the earth? How can they come closer to the Lord? How can they find his divine guidance in their lives? So I came across a couple of really, really great conference talks in October 2017. And I remember these two talks because it struck me at the time. One uh, is Elder Rasband's talk about divine design, and the other is Elder Pingree's talk about divine assignments. Same conference. One gave them, I think it was a Saturday morning, and then Saturday afternoon was the other. And it struck me at the time how they both, the Spirit was prompting both of them to talk about similar, not only similar sorts of things, but that really resonated with me at the time because I, I was at that point walking in some paths I didn't think I would be walking in. And um, Elder Pingree, in his talk, he goes through a number of steps where he talks about um, that as you seek for that path that the Lord has for you, he suggests first that you focus on others, that as you're looking for that path, that you continue to look at whatever you're planning to do in the context of, how can I use this to bless others? And then he talks about really paying attention to your spiritual gifts and genuinely seeking and going to the Lord and asking what those gifts might be. And they might be the gifts that are listed in numerous places in the scriptures, but they also might be the gifts of compassion or the gifts of speaking and writing and communicating clearly to others or a gift of leadership. So letting the Lord who knows you better than you know yourself reveal those to you. And then, and one of the ways I think you find them is by using them that as you use your gifts, they grow. Or as you experiment in an area, you'll say, oh, whoa, that is definitely not my gift. <laughs> and I have found that in some areas. Let's say, no, I will hire somebody to do that. I will get somebody to volunteer. I will ask you know, somebody I, 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 I trust to, to do this for me because I can't do that. That's all, There's also a tremendous value in that. Um, he also talks about the, the, the gifts of learning from adversity. And then he talks about trusting God and trusting that when the Lord puts you in a position, he will qualify for that position. Um, in Philippians, Paul says, and, and Paul learned this through through hard experience by being used as an instrument in the hands, hands of God. Um, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And sometimes I just have to repeat that over and over and over. I can do this. I can do this. The Lord is with me. He'll help me. And I believe in, in enabling power, that grace there are times when the Lord steps in and just helps you do what you never would have thought you were capable of doing on your own. And then the last thing I would suggest is, is getting out of the Lord's way and not trusting in your own plans, trusting in the Lord's plans, even though they may, may be super different from what you thought you would do with your life. You know, I had a consulting company and for years that was my, I was going to, you know, build the consulting company, sell the consulting company. And the Lord had a very different idea for me. And that was to take this left turn into nonprofit governance and then eventually working to start a private foundation and run a private foundation. Very, very different from what I thought. But but really a great use of my gifts and more fulfilling because I do feel like I'm doing good. Yeah. And I loved what you said at the beginning about serving others. I think a lot of times when we're given spiritual gifts, it's not to serve ourselves. It's always to serve others. Well, well, that yeah. Doctrine and Covenant says it. Yeah, but all these, exactly. We're giving gifts differing for the benefit of those who love the Lord and keep his commandments or those who seek so to do. Yeah. And that's really what it's about. 
It is. And then so as we serve others, we find different ways to expound upon those gifts and strengthen those gifts. And so for those who are listening who don't know, my mom works with a private foundation that identifies high potential individuals who just need a little bit of help. So in the work that you do, how do you help those individuals identify their different gifts and talents and recognize their mission in life and kind of guide them? Like, is this something that you see you do on a daily basis? So we have a case manager who works with individuals who are referred to us um, either by um, local nonprofit leaders or clergy or other community leaders. And she really hones in on um, what they've done in the past because past can usually predict the future, what their experiences have been, and then what their future goals are. And she gets a sense of that and helps guide them and make decisions. Our goal is to help these folks be in a process where they can um, be self-sufficient and no longer need to rely on government assistance or uh, and can pay their bills on time and save for the future and then eventually serve others. That was I worked with the founders to set the foundation up and that was their desire from the very beginning. So we work with people who have that same vision. And then we're very prayerful about how we fund um, education or transportation or housing or whatever it may be to help break down various barriers and help people move forward. And we've seen some really cool things happen. That's awesome. A lot, a lot of missionaries coming off of their missions mm-hmm. who, for whatever reason, you know, they've, they've spent two years in service to the Lord, have developed some amazing skills, recognized some wonderful gifts, the capabilities that they didn't know they had. And so now they're going to come home and now what? And so we do a lot of work with return missionaries, helping them find that next step and, and in a lot of cases, funding that. That's awesome, because we all need those guideposts to kind of guide us along the ways. Was there anything else in the talks that you found especially helpful? So I loved a quote from, there were a couple of quotes that were really, really exceptional to me. Elder Pingree talked about when you are in a position, and when the Lord puts you in a position to do something really, really remarkable, he said, you always have to remember that it's the Lord doing it and not you, and you give the Lord credit. And and Ammon was a great example of that. After the marvelous experience they had converting the, the Lamanite nation, he gave, gave glory to God. But Elder Pingree also quotes Mother Teresa. And he said, when a reporter tried to recognize Mother Teresa's life for her life's mission to help the poor, she retorted, it's God's work. I am like a pencil in his hand. He does the thinking. He does the writing. The pencil has nothing to do with it. The pencil has only to be allowed to be used. And I remember when uh, listening to conference here and hearing him say that, um, it impressed me at the time and it continues to impress me. I just want to be that pencil. The other thing that impressed me a great deal was a quote from Elder Maxwell. I think this was from Elder Rasband's talk. He says, none of us ever fully utilizes the people opportunities allocated to us within our circles of friendship. You and I may call these intersecting coincidences, but this word is understandable for mortals to use, but coincidence is not an appropriate word to describe the workings of an omniscient God. He does not do things by coincidence, but by divine design. Our lives are like a chessboard, and they, the Lord moves us from one place to another if we are responsive to spiritual promptings. Now, Elder Rasbin also likes to use the phrase, and he's used it in a couple of talks, where he talks about responding to first promptings and being a first responder. That's another key to really growing and walking in the path the Lord has set for us. It's being sensitive to the first promptings of the Spirit and responding, and the more you learn to be responsive, the more the Lord speaks to you and guides your path. It's interesting those moments in your life where you kind of feel like those chess pieces are being moved and you're not really quite sure how they're being moved. Because you can't see the end. Mm-hmm. And again, sometimes I think if you saw the end, you'd go, oh, whoa, no. Mm-hmm. Uh-uh. And so the Lord, the Lord just gives you the light that you need to move forward. Just that next step into the darkness, just to the edge of the light trusting that there won't be a cliff on the other side of the darkness that you know that that you'll be in and and if there is that you'll be given wings to fly yeah it's it's really trusting the lord and moving forward in faith and and putting him in control so then i think um it's either elder rasband or elder pingree in, in their talks one of them asks so what about agency what role mm. does agency have to oh, play oh that's in a this? good point yeah and the agency is that at any point you can choose not to follow and there have been, and, and it is to my great regret, I can look back on a couple of times when I said, uh, no, that's too much for me, or it's not really what I want to do right now, or I really don't think that'll work. And, you know, with hindsight, I can look back and say, yeah, that was a dumb decision. I should have trusted enough. 
But, you know, at any time you can say, I don't, I, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I see, we see some of that regret in Paul even. And his is totally different because his regret is about the actions that he took before he became Paul. Same thing with Alma and the sons of Mosiah. Exactly. The, exactly the same thing. Where they, but, but that regret then makes them even more committed. The sons of Mosiah and Alma um, sought to do good continually, that, that they could not bear the thought that anybody should suffer from their actions. And they tried really, really hard to make restitution to go back to everybody and, and help bring them back on, on the right path. And then they proactively went forward in the Sons of Mosiah. In their case, it was converting the Lamanite conversion. In Alma's case, it was the time he spent among the Zoramites and and going throughout Zarahemla and, and and the other areas around, preaching to the people and bringing them back to, to Christ and and fighting the the going through the wars. So regret can be very motivating mm-hmm. because you don't ever want to make those mistakes again. Yeah. At the same time, though, I'm like you know everything that they went through gave them experience and was for their good. Yeah. You know, God I think is, there's a scripture about that. I think there's a scripture somewhere about that, right? <laughs> no, I think, you know, the Lord is absolutely the master of taking lemons and making lemonade, right? And so if you've got something bad going on in your life, you know, just think that's lemons that's going to be made into lemonade later. Any other quotes that you've got there? Uh, there's, there's one of my favorite scriptures that was President Monson's scripture that he thought of when he was first called to be the prophet from Doctrine and Covenants 8488, and he says, um, I will go before your face, I will be on your right hand and on your left, and my spirit shall be in your hearts, and mine angels round about you to bear you up. When the Lord asks us to do anything, he's there with us. And the promised blessings in um, Doctrine and Covenants 109, the, the dedicatory prayer of the, the temple, where the, the Lord promises again that his angels will be with us. To, to bear us up. Those are incredible blessings. The Lord never, ever leaves us alone. Um, and even Paul also, in, in, in a number of scriptures, um, Ephesians 2.10, Paul says, For we are his workmanship created in Jesus Christ unto good works, with God ha- which God hath beforehand ordained that we should walk in them. So Paul knew that. He, he had learned that, that the Lord had, had a work for him to do. And and that if we would permit him, the Lord would do good works. And then, um, and again, you know, he in, in Philippians 4.13, Paul had learned by sad experience, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And in Romans 8.28, he said, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. The lessons there are that God is with us. If we, if we will just surrender our will it's a, it's um, a yielding. It really, King Benjamin talked about yielding our hearts to God. That's really what he's asking for is the only real gift we can give. The only thing that is ours to give is our will. And so when we use that the tremendous gift of our agency to trust the Lord and to go in the path he wants us to go, we have the promise that his angels will be with us, he will be with us, and he will help us do whatever it is he requires of us. Oh, I love my mom. She's amazing. Okay, and so with that, we are going to end this week's episode. Um, I hope you all have an awesome week. I will see you here next week. Have a great week. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Have a question or comment? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.